Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and you decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm caretaker of this establishment, Mike Emmel, and I'm excited to welcome tonight's co-host, the final host that we are borrowing from our friends at the Casual Cinecast, and even though it's his first time on the show, I can't help but feel he's always been here. Please welcome Mike. Mike, how's it going, man? I am well. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I appreciate being um, the final member of the Casual Cinecast to finally be a guest on this wonderful show. I save the best for last. Justin, Chris, mere stepping stones to finally get you in the limelight here, man. Thank you for accepting the invite. They're used to it at this point. I mean, (laughs) I can't even tell you. I know. Thanks for having me. It's really good of you to carry them and to lend your talents to our show. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Casual Cinecast. It's been my honor to have all three of you on here during this uh, this year, 2019, our second season. It was my goal to get all three of you. I finally get my wish. Uh, <laughs> Mike, the Casual Cinecast, I'm a huge fan, but maybe everyone who's listening uh, isn't quite on the wavelength yet. Would you mind plugging your show, telling us what you guys are up to over there? Absolutely. Thank you. So at the Casual Cinecast, uh, my friends, Chris, Justin, and myself, well, we all used to work at Blockbuster together. So we kind of grew up talking new movies together, and we got into the Criterion Collection about the same time. So we decided to create a podcast where we switch between Criterion Collection movies and current movies. So every other week, we put out a poll for listeners to vote on a new Criterion Collection-focused episode. And this week, for example, we're reviewing 12 Angry Men. Ooh, that's one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, and then last week, we just did The Lighthouse. So it kind of goes like that, back and forth. So Criterion, new movie. So uh, it kind of keeps you up to date as well as keeps you uh, diving back into some old classics that need some attention. And I like to sometimes call you guys our brother podcast because you're also very into listener input. I think you guys put out polls to decide which of the Criterion Collection ones uh, you discuss per given week, right? Yeah, that is correct. This week, the theme is isolation based on The Lighthouse. Excellent. It'll also fit our show. Yeah. What are what are the three picks for isolation? Actually, it just wrapped up, and like I said earlier, Twelve Angry Men just won. Okay. That was Justin's pick, but Chris and I, we each actually chose a Roman Polanski film. He chose Knife in the Water, and I chose Repulsion. Solid picks, but Justin won again, huh? Yeah, you know, there's always Unbeatable. someone who picks like the most popular movie, and we always <laughs> can tell who's going to win <laughs> before it even anyone even votes on it. Highly recommend everybody check it out. A great mix of current reviews of Old classics, the Criterion Collection. I mean, we're, a lot of us here on the show are Criterion junkies. Let's get real. We just talked about the Umbrellas of Cherbourg last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, us too. Like, yeah, that, was, that was crazy. So we are we are really syncing up here, man. Uh, so yeah, everybody check out the Casual Cinecast. And thank you all for joining us. And hey, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We are really thankful you guys have checked in because the purpose of our show is to decide which movies truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema. And Mike and I, we just can't do that on our own, shine as we might. So to mm-hmm. determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on that list, we're going to leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls that we're going to put out on our various social media pages. So if you're not already doing so, just make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook, all of which you can find us on simply by searching for Cinemus. Find us on there so you can cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. And while you're all making sure that you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, Mike, we're going to be asking the listeners to vote tonight's film into one of three categories. If I could pull you away from the typewriter for just a minute, would you remind us all what those three categories are? Absolutely. I tried to let everyone know using The Shining, but it didn't work because I don't think anyone heard me. It worked on 5%. (laughs) Uh, The three categories are Cinemust, which is a movie that you would recommend to anyone and everyone. Cinetrust, which would be a movie that you would recommend, but only to a few people... Um, not to everyone. And then Cinebust, which is a movie that you would not recommend to anyone. And normally I, I would turn it over to you to tell us which movie uh, we're talking about tonight, but I'm taking over that because this is the end of the month show, which means our listeners voted on which movie they wanted to hear us discuss. Ironically enough, Chris, um, Knife in the Water was a possibility for uh, one of your sh- for your last show, didn't make it. It was also a possibility for this episode that was suggested... Um, so there must be some kind of connection going on all over the, the, the film Twitter sphere. 
Uh, but yeah, so the the winner is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. This was uh, nominated by my sister, Bailey Emil, and listeners ran with it. Everybody overwhelmingly gave this a shout out. It was really neck and neck with Goodfellas, uh, beat it out by about two votes, I think. So mm. the, Sh- the Shining is up tonight, and at the end of the week, we're going to turn it over to listeners to decide if it's a cinemust, a cinetrust, or cinebust. But uh, before we give them the chance, I mean, this is a podcast, and Mike, you and I need to have our say, so... Let's get going with the show. And for anybody who's new to the show, we are going to take a couple of minutes, totally spoiler-free, to basically try to sell you on the movie in case you've never heard of The Shining or never seen it. I mean, I think most people have heard of The Shining, but it might have eluded some people. So Mike and I, were going to try to sell you on it. Let's give you a little plot summary. We are going to vote it into one of the three categories, Cinema, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And then each of us is going to give three reasons apiece for why we voted it the way we did. From there, we'll lay down a spoiler warning to back those points up with examples from the movie. But if you haven't seen the movie yet and don't want it spoiled for you, hang with us a couple of minutes. We'll try to get you hooked before uh, you can pause the episode and go check it out. Um, So, Mike, it's a really famous movie. The ones that win the listener pick polls usually are. But uh, can you tell us what The Shining's about? I can certainly try. A frustrated writer named Jack Torrance and his family become caretakers at a haunted hotel up in the Colorado mountains. His son, Danny Torrance, possesses a psychic ability called The Shining. During their long, isolated stay, strange and odd things begin to happen while tensions rise. Ooh, I got goose pimples just hearing it. Thank you. Mike, um, our, our first time corresponding, I know you guys have covered some Kubrick movies. You did a Barry Lyndon episode not long ago, the movie Kubrick did right before The Shining, but I have no idea where you're coming from on this particular film. So if you'd care to make it official, how are you going to vote for The Shining? I believe The Shining is a cinema must. All right. A movie absolutely everybody must see. Yeah, that's correct. I think so. All right. I love it. Uh, Can you give me three reasons for why you believe that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, First of all, mood. This is a very singular film. There aren't many things like it that evoke this kind of mood. Uh, we can get a little bit more into detail about that later, and I'll I'll kind of explain a little bit what I mean when I say mood. But it is a very mood-driven film. Second, Jack Nicholson's performance. I mean, this is up there with, like, Marlon Brando and The Godfather, or, you know... Ooh, okay, now I like will say bold words. Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront. I mean, this is one of those performances <laughs> that you've just seen. Or Marlon you know Brando in uh, Last Tango in Paris. Yeah, there you go. Just, let's just go down Marlon Brando's list. Um... <laughs> I hate that movie, uh, by the way. I'm being facetious. I know. But um, and then uh, the third one I have is Legacy. This film has a legacy that most horror movies can't even begin to approach. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Um, so, solid reasons all around. I don't think anybody would uh, dispute them. Me least of all, because uh, I, I kind of... Apologize if that felt like I was pushing on you. If like, oh, Cinemust, really? I'm totally voting this a Cinemust as well. Absolutely, everybody <laughs> should should see The Shining. And funny you should say that about The Legacy. I haven't made it one of my three reasons, but I think reason 3.5 could be like, well, if I don't vote this a Cinemust, like the horror community is going to have my guts for carters. I mean, exactly. Holy cow, it's such... But I, I really do think it's a great movie, and that's why The Legacy was not one of my three reasons, even though it's very present when you approach the movie. I think there are three reasons that revolve just around the movie itself that make it worth seeing. Uh, For me, those three reasons are, one, that it's a fantastically grandiose take on the haunted house genre. Like, we've heard of haunted mansions, but I mean, the Overlook Hotel, come on, it's so good. And I love the way that The Shining runs with those conventions, subverts a a couple of them, but honestly, it's kind of comforting to me how many it really just sticks to, it has its own personal flavor. Um, but still fits within the haunted house movie genre. I think it's so good. Well, I mean, isn't a haunted hotel way more interesting than a haunted house? We're going to talk about this. I think so. (laughs) I definitely think so. Um, My second reason I recommend it to everybody, it's got some of horror's most iconic imagery. And if that point sounds familiar, it's because it's almost verbatim one of the reasons I gave for voting 2001 A Space Odyssey, a cinemust, a year and a half ago. I said that movie had some of science fiction's most iconic imagery. Oh, yeah. This is Kubrick's thing, man. He he swoops into a genre, picks apart, like, what's working and what isn't, and he just lays down, like, this quintessential entry in a genre with some of its most provocative and iconic imagery, and then he's out, and he doesn't make another movie in that genre ever again. And so The yeah. Shining is it, his horror movie, and... uh 
in a, in one swoop, he's made one of the most legendary, most iconic horror movies with such an impressive visual look. It reminds me of something that Quentin Tarantino said one time when he was talking about car chases whenever Death Proof came out. And he was talking about how he loved car chase movies and he wanted to make a car chase movie. But if he was going to throw his hat into the ring of car chases, he wanted to make sure that his car chase was something that he thought was going to be one of the best car chases, you know? Mm -hmm. So what that's kind of essentially what you're describing with Kubrick right here. Where it's like it seems like once he decides to dive into a certain genre, he... <laughs> tries to find a way to like throw the gauntlet down yeah no his <laughs> basically his, once he does it. his his entire career is hold my beer <laughs> <laughs> basically um so yeah we'll, we'll talk about the imagery i i referring to specifically but yeah such a, such a great entry in the horror genre and some of its best visuals and then the third reason i think everyone's got to see it you can have just so many interpretations of it and that's even before you start getting into the really crackpot theories <laughs> this might be the most famous movie that just has multiple interpretations. I know 2001 is fan up there theories. as well, but holy cow, yeah, fan theories abound with The Shining. There's an entire really crappy documentary about that, in, in my opinion. I really don't like the movie Room 237, but um, it does get you thinking about the different directions people can take The Shining and run with it. And sure. um, yeah, I, as we get into spoilers, I'd love to hear, like, kind of, Mike, what your you know, biggest reading on the movie is some of the things about it to find most interesting. But yeah, I think it's 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 a pretty serviceable haunted house movie on the surface. That's one of my reasons it's a must see, but below the surface there's all sorts of different currents running this way and that and you can you can analyze that story any one of a dozen or two dozen different ways. So for that alone I think it's worth seeing just to see what you think your interpretation of it is. Um, and then, yeah, reason 3.5, as I mentioned, just the legacy. One of the one of the most legendary horror movies. I think one of the top 10 best. Um, the Shining is absolutely a must-see movie for me. Yeah. We're 100% on this. Absolutely everyone's got to see this. I'd wager that most people listening have seen it. But in case you haven't, I hope that that whets your appetite. We think, horror fan or not, The Shining is absolutely a movie that you should check out. So if you haven't already, we're going to move into spoilers. So go ahead and pause the episode here. Go check out The Shining and come back to hear the rest of the discussion. But um, Mike, if there's nothing else you want to say spoiler free, I think we should get going with that. Yeah, I'm interested to uh, break down some of the more detailed answers. Let's do it. Okay. It, uh, sorry, before we do that, is, is there anything else you want to say spoiler free to, to whet the appetite of anyone who hasn't seen it? I would say spoiler free. This movie is a cinema must. That does not mean it is perfect. In fact, this movie's pretty goofy in a couple places. <laughs> but that said, I still strongly think it's a cinema must, and uh, you'll find out all the reasons why here in a little bit. I agree. Not a, not a perfect movie, but few cinema musts are. You know, all cinema must movies can't be Jaws. But you know, what are you gonna do? Um, <laughs> yeah, man. I I'll just ditto everything you said, along with everything I've said. It's just one of the best. It's legendary. So if you haven't seen The Shining, please go check it out. Um, pause the episode. But uh, if you don't care about spoilers or you've already seen the movie, then that's great because we're moving ahead. So everybody, this is our official warning. Spoilers for The Shining. Get a lot written today? Yes. Hey, weather forecast said it's going to snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? Oh, come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. I just want to finish my work. Okay, I understand. I'll come back later on with a couple of sandwiches for you, and maybe you'll let me read something then. Wendy, <clears throat> let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. 
Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Okay. All right, Mike. So uh, the the spoiler-free section was abounding with just the legendary status of this movie. It's actually one of your reasons it's a movie you recommend to everybody. It's It's got a legacy. It is, it's almost the legacy of the horror movie genre. Uh, so I thought we should start talking about that. What about The Shining has endeared it so much into popular culture? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if I could point out specifically what in the movie has resonated so much with pop culture, but I can ask a rhetorical question here to prove my point, which is that how many horror films have been this embedded in pop culture? I don't think any. Interesting. I would make the case for a few of the universal classic monsters, specifically Frankenstein. Sure. sure. I, I think that's that's the only other one that I think is, is on this level where like you know the look of the movie, you know the story of the movie, you know that movie, even if you've never watched it. Sure. I agree with that. Um, I would say in, in recent memory, though, of modern pop culture, uh, this movie made in the early 80s is still resonating in pop culture you have jack nicholson's face on things still <laughs> here's johnny the axe like everything about it, like the twins the the elevator of blood these are things that like in the last tw uh, 12 months there have been two movies that have spoofed the shining so we've had or not even spoofed, spoofed or, or paid, paid homage. homage so we have we have yeah, dr sleep the, the long-awaited sequel what's the other one <laughs> ready player one oh that's right um a cine trust rated film for ready player one yeah. I had forgotten but, about that. That's so funny. Exactly. But but here we are, uh, you know, decades later, and we are still putting this as like the gold standard. Like it still shows up in movies as like the gold standard for other horror movies to scare characters in the movie. You know what I mean? Like in Ready mm -hmm. Player One, there's a whole gag about it. Like, yeah, I mean, that's like the kind of embedded in pop culture stuff that the original Star Wars trilogy is. You know what I mean? Like there right. are certain things that are just so embedded in pop culture that Regardless of your personal feelings on the finished product of the movie, like even if I didn't personally like The Shining, I think I would still have to rate it a cinemust. Yeah, for that reason. No, there's there's a lot of pressure going in. I mean, there was never any doubt I would cinemust it because I really do love The Shining. But sure. there there really is that pressure of like I I can't go against the flow on this one. It is just too universally recognized as a masterpiece. Yeah, exactly. You you brought up an interesting point about the running gag about you know how scary the movie is. I wanted to ask. Do you think the movie is still scary 40 years later? Interesting. I may be unique in this. I saw The Shining for the first time in its entirety when I was probably maybe 16 or 17 years old. And I didn't think it was scary. I'll tell you what scared me more than anything with, in regards to The Shining. As I watched Twister when I, was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid. My girlfriend and I actually talked about this. We had the same story. We both saw Twister before The Shining. Same here. No, that's actually how I was introduced to The Shining. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Twister makes this movie out to be the scariest thing in the world. It's because it was the original 3D experience, like tornadoes burst out of the screen and suck up Yeah, it was just such a unique thing in that movie that, like, it, uh, again, embedded in pop culture, right? Like, um, every now and then The Shining will just pop up every decade or so in something that, even if you haven't seen it, you're hearing about it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just one of those uh, interesting things. Whether or not it's scary... I would say maybe it's a little dated to be scary now, but it's still intense. I think there's still some thrills in there. Definitely. And I'm with you. I, I don't know that I would say it's like horrifying. It's not like a real, you know, hide behind your the blanket kind of movie. But I think we honestly make mistakes. That's the criticism I hear with all current horror movies. Like part of the criteria for if it's good or not is if it's scary. If it's not scary, then it's not a good horror movie. And I don't agree with that criteria for judging a horror movie. Me neither. Because I think it discounts, you know, anything that's, you know, older than five years for the most part. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that it also is unconventionally scary, that it's not a movie that's relying upon a lot of the conventions of the genre. It's it's not really a slasher movie. It's not a, a jump scare laden thing. Like really where a lot of its terror comes from is in its quiet and in its mood, which is another one of your points. And you said you were going to back up what exactly you meant by mood when we got into spoilers. So we're here, man. What, what about the mood of The Shining? No, oh, no. It's time for me to put my money where my mouth is. Um, yeah, so this movie, Mood, is so singular in its tone. I mean, no other movie even approaches this kind of um, mood, right? Like the organ, the music that's based on the Gregorian chant. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the cinematography. 
set design, the carpet, the um, <laughs> the eerie ambient noises that are going on whenever there is supposed to be silence happening. The interior of the hotel itself is so interesting and maze-like and has this impossible floor layout to where if you pay attention to the floor layout in that movie, it doesn't even make sense. You're in this impossible dream world that part of you knows can't exist. You look at the exterior of the hotel, it doesn't match the interior of the hotel, but it doesn't matter. You don't think about it at the time, but something about it, everything about it is pointing to something doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong. Something feels off, but it's never boring. Interesting. It Uh, always moves, you know? I don't know. Um, I think the only thing that I think maybe throws off the mood a little bit is I honestly think the font choice in the opening title (laughs) is just dreadful. It looks like a... Like the old VHS, like, yeah. built-in font. No, it really does. And, I mean, essays upon essays have been written about it because, you know, when it, with a Kubrick movie, only with a Kubrick movie do we have to analyze every single thing because he's such a consummate, obsessive master of everything. So, you know, the, right. that, that font means something, and I don't know what, but I'm going to figure it out. Right. Um, I don't mean to sound bitter. We, we've covered this in the, the 2001 show that I, I think Kubrick absolutely is one of the greatest directors of all time, but it does bother me that he's the only director we do that with. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, a, a continuity error can't just be a continuity error because movies cost millions of dollars to produce and even Kubrick can't do that. You know, I can't have that much fidelity to a chairs in the background of this scene and then it's out in the reverse shot. Like, I agree with maybe that. Maybe it was just filmed three days later. Maybe it doesn't have to mean anything, people. But power to you if you want to. Like I said, one of the reasons it's a cinema must is a lot of people have a lot of interpretations of it. Sure. I personally think the disappearance of the chair is one of the crackpot theories that doesn't matter and is just a product of movies costing a lot of time and money to make. But hey, run with it if you want to. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, you mentioned Room 237, the documentary about fan theories earlier. Yes. I don't like that movie either. I didn't even finish it. So I'm not one of these people that subscribes to, like, everything that doesn't add up in The Shining equals Kubrick telling us something or the hidden Mm -hmm. meaning. I'm I'm not one of those people. Right. That said, the, the layout of the Overlook Hotel on the interior, there are a lot of things that don't make sense. Like, for example, when he goes into Room 237... There are doors on either, like, all up and down the hallway, as if it's just, like, a singular room, right? But when he gets into room 237, that's a three-part room. Right. It's the big suite, a bedroom next to it, which would be where the other door is on the hallway outside, and then a bathroom, which would be where the other room is. And then there's, like, extra hallways that don't go around that you can see when Danny's, like, going all over the place. So I don't know if it necessarily means anything, other than I think Kubrick wanted us to feel very disoriented like a maze. Sure. He never wanted us to have our bearings. I don't necessarily think it means anything like uh, those crazy, crazy, crazy fan theories in Room 237. But I do <laughs> right. think there is a, cer- a certain amount of he never wanted you to find your footing or mm-hmm. know where you were. So with, without that being pointed out in things like Room 237, so let's take that layout for an example. Do you think even if that hadn't been brought to your attention explicitly, do you think it still has a subconscious effect on the viewer to disorient them? I think so. Because I remember when I first saw the movie, one of the creepiest things about it was the eeriness of the hotel itself. The hotel is a character in the movie. Mm -hmm. And everything, like these long, ugly white hallways that are so 70s looking, but, but so abandoned and empty, all this empty space. And it's eerie and, you know, the the constant comparisons to the literal maze outside and the labyrinth of the literal maze and how the literal maze itself changes from the bird's eye view to the maps that you see outside of it. These are all things that I don't think are supposed to draw attention to themselves, but I think you're supposed to always be never sure of your footing. Yeah, and th- and that's honestly one of those iconic images that I'm talking about that... Um... The, the imagery of the Steadicam shots tracking through the maze are mirrored with exploring the hotel. You know, those same moves are made. And it's it's always fun to me in, in terms of, like, making an interpretation of the movie is finding where the dead ends are. You know, when you, when you watch as the family's being introduced to the hotel, you notice, you know, the, the dead end follows, or the camera will follow them into their quarters, you know, and the dead end is the bathroom where where mm-hmm. you know, the iconic, you know, axe through the door, here's Johnny scene is going to take place. But also, you know, the, the dead end is the the domestic site. It's it's kind of where the family is going to die. 
and then you know there's there's a couple other dead ends you know like room 237 is a, a dead end and kind of a a secret subconscious closet i i think that that stuff is very very interesting to to draw the parallel of the maze because this is also a, a part of how the movie's embracing like the haunted house genre that in these types of movies you know they're, they're all there's always like the same kind of tropes you know you, you're isolated from civilization there's usually some kind of external force that is keeping you inside and isolated from the rest of the world um mm-hmm. the past connects with a specific location an event in the past manifests itself in a location rather than a person um and and it, this idea of like uh, the house kind of becoming someone's mind or a character's mind that in exploring the house it's mirroring the experience of exploring the self and there's this sense in the shining and in all haunted house movies i'd argue that there's a sense of the familiar but still the uncanny all in one and that's kind of where um, we were talking about, you know, like haunted, haunted houses are cool, haunted mansions are cool, but haunted hotels, primo. And that's yeah. that's kind of what the, the fun is, is like I said, this is taking the haunted mansion trope and upping it because I think there's something kind of exciting about this prospect in Act One that you're this, you're following this everyday family who gets this whole hotel all to their self and it has this really interesting history. Like it's it's kind of an adventure. Like, you know, of course, keeping to haunted house genres, it's also replete with this horrible thing happened here and you know that it's it's going to turn south but there's also a sense of wonder to it and wow i get all of this to myself to just run around and explore in all that stuff you know you can find out in things like the haunting but here you know there's something about setting it in this hotel upping the scale and then bringing that maze metaphor in that i think makes it kind of almost the quintessential haunted house movie i agree and and like i mentioned earlier and kind of what kicked this whole thing off is Nothing else quite feels like this hotel, right? Like even if you were to film, uh, they have filmed another version of The Shining. The hotel doesn't feel the same. Right. If you filmed in any other hotel, it would feel a lot like a hotel. This doesn't even feel like a hotel. This feels like a, a gigantic maze lodge. It, it It is, yeah. It's not It's not like your Motel 6 or even anything in, in a regular yeah. mountain it lodge you've been to. It's very much its own monster. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it said it was built in like 1907 or 1906 or something like that. And I don't know when the sets were built or how they were designed, but like it feels like an outdated building like the architect even by 1980 it was way out of fashion almost never in fashion like this hotel almost like it's like someone's fever dream i don't i don't want to get into this quite yet but i think that's an interesting idea for my personal interpretation of the movie um but also the look of the hotel and feeding into the mood i i also enjoy and i think this is another reason why people would say this is one of the best haunted or horror movies is is in the ways it it bucks the stereotypes of the horror genre, and I think, like we said, it it's not a slasher movie. It's not overly reliant on gore, though it certainly has like the most famous gore laden image in all of horror. I think with the, <laughs> the blood coming out of the elevators, but it it's so refreshing. I think even today watching it to find that it's not re- reliant on jump scares and it's not reliant on using darkness to up tension. Like everything is always so well lit, almost overpoweringly so. Like in the mm-hmm. in the confrontation scene with the, the gimme the bat wendy scene the wind the light coming in through those windows is like blinding it's so distracting and I, I i really like that and i like that what kubrick does is he kind of takes scares away from like you know using negative space and using darkness and instead what he's getting scares out of is that sense of isolation and you know those beautiful symmetrical shots that kind of emp- emphasize the tiny human figure in the middle like jack typing in his typewriter but then just that gigantic it's not a ballroom what is the room that he's working in is it just kind of like oh it's like the lodge like the uh yeah little foyer room or like whatever yeah yeah but just just like that huge sense of emptiness but also of like that domineering presence of the hotel against like this tiny figure and it's even really well established in the opening shots of that just cute yellow bug winding its way up the the Rocky Mountain Roads. Oh, yeah. You know, early on, they say that, like, the hotel was, like, thought about before even winter sports were a thing. <laughs> so it was chosen strictly for its isolation. So like, even right then in of itself, like, you have this um, imagery and this idea that, like, you have to go to, like, almost, like, the edge of the Colorado mountains, like, a way where people just don't exist just to visit mm-hmm. this unique individual place. It's almost like this impossible building, you know? Yeah. And again, that's a, a trope of the haunted house movie and there's something kind of romantic in it. Like that claustrophobia becomes a source of terror, but 
You know, even though he looks a little crazy in the beginning, when, when Jack says what he's looking for is just peace and quiet and isolation, there's a part of you, part of us in our, our busy lives of just juggling a hundred different plates at once and being like, oh man, just to relax by myself in this hotel? Kind of sounds like it has its upside. Yeah, I, I see the benefits. Yeah, for, for all the criticism the movie came under, especially by Stephen King, who wrote the novel upon which it's based, you know, his, his whole thing is that it's a, a pretty cold movie. And maybe this is just revisiting it a dozen plus times, or maybe time's just been kind to it. I actually do find this to be a warmer movie than like the first viewing suggests. Like, you know, the first the first viewing kind of does suggest kind of the cold calculated structuralism of Kubrick and that it's about those perfectly constructed shots and it's not really about the actors. It kind of seems like he lets his actors run amok. But the more I watch it, the more I'm actually supremely invested in in the plight of this family. And it sounds like you're invested in the plight of at least one of them because your third reason, Jack Nicholson's your guy. And this is an iconic <laughs> performance, he said. And I'm super interested to talk about this because I agree. But even now, I sometimes wonder if he doesn't carry it too far. So oh, let's, let me, let's let me, talk let this me, out. Let's talk about Jack Nicholson in this yeah. movie. Let me, let me correct myself here. Uh, not even a correction. Let me clarify myself. I say it's an iconic performance. I didn't say it was a great <laughs> okay. performance. Fair, fair um, enough. Maybe that ties too much into legacy. I do think it is a great performance, but I think he is doing something pretty bonkers in this movie. Um, I did say earlier this movie can be pretty goofy, and I I stand by that. I think that Jack Nicholson's performance at times is a little goofy. There is the scene whenever Shelley Duvall brings him the breakfast in bed. <laughs> yeah. With the... And he's like, I mean, I've had deja vu before, but this is ridiculous. You know, like, that's a weird scene. It's not bad necessarily it's just bonkers and here's what i would say i would say that jack nicholson is peak jack nicholson here and jack nicholson became jack nicholson for a reason well that's what i was about to cut in with is i think this is the movie that created jack nicholson it as, created as the persona of jack nicholson as we know him today yeah and you know i think the case uh, maybe you could make the case for one flew over the cuckoo's nest but even then, like his performance seems a lot more varied and restrained. I, I think it's here where he is going full Jack. Right. I think this is like where where like the persona like like I grew up. I was born in eighty seven, right? So when I grew up in like the nineties, Jack Nicholson was already Jack Nicholson. The Shining was already a thing. Like The Shining was in my subconscious. Uh, you know, here's Johnny. Before I even comprehended who Jack Nicholson was. Uh, so I think. Sometime in the 80s, he just kind of became full-on, like, sunglasses wearing, you know. Smiling and eyebrows, Jack Nicholson. Devilishly, yeah. yeah, like, grinning all the time. Like, I think that all started, like, he a little dangerous, you know, f seeming. I think that all started here. So, you know, history has kind of proven Stephen King wrong, because he's still not a fan of the movie. It bastardized his baby. And history has kind of proven that Stephen King doesn't know what to do with his own material because I, I, I haven't seen it, but I am very aware of the, the TV miniseries that is very faithful to the novel that uh sucks by all accounts. Starring Rob Lowe, right? Uh, I don't remember. I think he was in Salem's Lot. Oh, maybe that's what it was. I haven't seen it. Maybe listeners can chime in. Um, I don't want to waste my time because if I'm going to spend four hours on The Shining, why not just spend two and a half on Kubrick's movie, which I love and it's a masterpiece. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, you know, Stephen King's thing, his big problem is the casting of Jack Nicholson, that the story is supposed to be about a, a nice average everyday guy who goes crazy and his feeling is, in the beginning, Jack Nicholson's already crazy. You watch him in that interview scene, he's already unhinged, he's already boiling just under the surface, it's just going to take a tiny push. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think Stephen King's wrong. And when I watch the movie, I often can't help but play the, the casting game in my head wondering if the movie would work with a different actor. And at this point, it's very difficult to tell because, like you said, this is an iconic performance and things like Here's Johnny and all of just his weird little quirks, you know, his, you know, tapping on the pantry door as he's telling Wendy that the snowcat's disabled and licking his tongue. It's all over the top, but at this point in, in time, it's like, well, would it be The Shining if it didn't have, you know, that bonkers stuff in it? Yeah, like if he didn't, if he didn't go too far... Would it be as iconic? Exactly. And I know watching um, a retrospective on the Blu-ray, I think it's Spielberg that tells the story they were talking. Spielberg didn't really like the movie when he first saw it. Yeah. And he was talking to Kubrick about it. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, well, I think Jack Nicholson goes too over the top. And Kubrick had him list his favorite actors. And he listed off, you know, 
I like Spencer Tracy. I like Jimmy Stewart. I like Clark Gable. And Kubrick says, well, what about James Cagney? Yep. And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess so. And Kubrick's like, James Cagney always goes over the top. We remember him because he always goes over the top. So, yep. you know, it's it's kind of hard to argue with the logic. We we can't separate this from the movie now. But do you think that, objectively speaking, the movie is maybe a little miscast? Or do you think it's pitch perfect? Here's what I would say. I am sympathetic to Stephen King's point of view here. He created The Shining. He knows what The Shining is supposed to be. Um, that I don't, that honest, said. I honestly, to, to intercut real quick, I honestly don't think Stephen King gets enough credit where this movie is because it takes such a left turn. You know, it's it's often called a loose adaptation. I think it's close enough it could be called an adaptation just because Kubrick changes a bunch of things. But, you know, mm. a lot of these things, you know, the history of the Overlook, this sense of isolation, all these things about the haunted house genre, like that's laid down by Stephen King. So sure. it's, you know, I think I think we always give Kubrick all the credit on his movies. But, you know, here we've we got a great author who wrote a really good story to base it on. We had actors and crew who worked their butts off. And I, I oh, worry sure. sometimes I mean, Kubrick always adapts. <laughs> yeah. Kubrick, I mean, Kubrick's movies are great, but he never, I mean, I think most of his movies, if not all of them, are adaptations. But they are his projects. Yeah, but he, he makes them his own. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry to get you off base. I just wanted to, to give Stephen King a shout out that yeah. even though he's kind of on the wrong side of the argument, as history has shown, like, I still think he kind of gets shafted when it comes to talking about the movie's success. I agree. And I think, from what I understand is, I, I heard that Stephen King wanted to make a story about a haunted man, whereas Stanley Kubrick made a story of a haunted hotel. Interesting. I, uh, I, don't I know disagree, but we can talk about it. Yeah, well, I don't know if I have that right, but I was going to say I disagree with it also because I feel like Jack Torrance, I, here's the way I read the movie, and watching Dr. Sleep recently kind of cemented it even more and made me disagree with Stephen King even more, which is that I don't think Kubrick's version is, is that far off from what I understand based on what Stephen King was saying. Sure, Jack Torrance seems like a kind of an asshole right under the surface, right off the bat, but I think that's still a valid story. It may not sure. be the exact same Jack Torrance, but there are a lot of men who, uh, like, the story is Jack feels held back by his family. You know, he, what does he say to Shelley Duvall? Like, you know, uh, what does he say to her? Like, um, you ruined my f***ing life or something like something that, or I'm not going to let you ruin it anymore. Yeah. So... This is a man who is trying to be a different man than he is. And the hotel brings out the worst in him, brings up, you know, the demons in him, mm -hmm. and he can't fight them. I, I don't necessarily know that that makes a worse story, but I am sympathetic to Stephen King's point. But I honestly, truth be told, I think it's a little bit better if the hotel brings out the ugliness that's already within you. And and honestly, that's I think that's what makes the movie succeed and doesn't make it boring or too slowly paced because it really mm -hmm. is about bringing that stuff to the surface and the hotel enabling like those worst entitled tendencies in Jack's character. So I'm totally with you that I actually think it's uh, a maybe a more interesting story because I, I think that we, we did have those mixed up that Stephen King maybe is writing a yeah a, a haunted. haunted house, his version of a haunted yeah. house. And Kubrick is also making his version of a haunted house movie but he's he's very much rolling with this kind of thing that um, the old dark house did that you know that i think that the the hotel like i said becomes this symbol of like the mind and the, the subconscious desires and and things right. that are being brought out id and ego and and that whole conflict because we know uh, we know like kubrick's super into freudian theory and stuff and it just bleeds through every seam of this movie not only from jack but from danny's point of view too because a lot of the ways that danny copes with things are very psychoanalytical that he can't comprehend everything that's happening around him so he attributes you know his shining ability as his imaginary friend lives in his mouth and has to talk through a finger he has certain barriers and gates that he's put up because his conscious mind can't handle what he's seeing yet right and well and also i think he feels a little bit of a um disconnect from his father right like yeah you know and so yeah i agree the the stephen king wanted the haunted house uh, stanley kubrick wanted the haunted man but i think the the fact that stanley kubrick still gives the haunted house makes it more of an impactful haunted house story because uh you know so much of stephen king it seems it almost fits with stephen king's themes better because it seems like so much yeah. of stephen king's themes throughout all his movies are like your own personal trauma is what is really scaring you most yeah. right and that's really your weakness is 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 your is your own ptsd that you're, you're not familiar with or your own inner demons 
it seems like the the Overlook Hotel in the movie really jumps all over uh, Jack Torrance's demons um, and knows just how to to play him, you know, because I mean, it's also messing with Danny. The only person it's not messing with is uh, is Shelley Duvall's character. Yeah, and, until the very end where she's no longer blocking out, you know, everything except what she wants to see. And then, you know, it's just yeah, dog suit fellatio galore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, until she goes completely bonkers. But um, yeah. Totally. And yeah, and, and again, to speak to how the movie is so unique and why I think we love it for upending a lot of horror tropes is in an era that is kind of marked by the monster being the outsider and the other, where we've already had Leatherface, we've had uh, the alien the year before, we're going to get Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, we're going to get all these like outside forces that come in. Here's a movie where the monster is the guy we knew. It's our, our provider, our father, and he has turned against us and he's become the our monster. Our caretaker. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of like I'm with you. I'm sympathetic to Stephen King's claims, but it's also not like it ruins the movie because, you know, in a, in a horror movie, you come with certain expectations that like, OK, it's all going to start out very nice and someone's going to make a flippant remark about it being built on a Native American burial ground. And we know all that stuff is going to bite us in the butt and it's going to turn scary in the end. That's what we're there for. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that Nicholson's nuts from the, from the get go. and just needs a little push because the, the movie actually does a really good job of it's almost entirely about that little push that's given. And I think some of the best scenes like with Lloyd, the bartender and in the men's room with Grady, really simple scenes, but very enthralling. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the woman in the room 237 is still one of the creepiest uh, things to me. Yeah. And, and again, you know, played in, in stark light, you know, it's not dark and, and creepy. It's all about, the emptiness of that room and her just very slowly and calmly pulling that curtain back and standing up really creepy stuff. Great mood. Creepy siren. Yeah. So, and another thing you said is, is so funny, you know, we're talking all Stephen King's backlash against the movie. I bet you if we, if we ran a Twitter poll this week said, Hey, what's the best Stephen King movie? The shining's probably going to take it. I, I don't personally agree. I'd probably put Carrie in front of it, but you know, for for going so far afield of what Stephen King intended, The Shining is now recognized as the absolute best movie adapted from a Stephen King work. Yeah, and I would say that um, you know, Carrie is pretty iconic itself with the blood at the end, right? And oh, yeah. everything, but it still doesn't hold a candle to Jack Nicholson throwing an axe through that door. That's true, and and that's what's funny. I w- I was thinking of like all these iconic images that I'm I'm touting as a reason people should see the movie. And it's so funny that just that close-up of his face through the door and saying, here's Johnny, has has now become iconic. And I think that, you know, we owe as much credit to Jack Nicholson for improvising the line as we do to, you know, the framing of the shot. But even simple things like that, you know, the, the swing of the axe through the door and the way the camera kind of frantically pans back and forth to follow it. Even that, like we said, that's embedded in cultural consciousness. If you haven't seen The Shining, you still probably know that section of the movie. Yeah. So we've been talking on and off about, um, it's a multi-interpretational movie. Everybody brings their own baggage to it, comes away with a little something different. I wondered if you were willing to share, like, your main interpretation of the movie. Like, what do you pull out of it? It's been so long since I've seen it for the first time. I'm trying to divorce myself of, like, all the research and stuff I've done since then, you know? And, like... Okay. And uh, trying to divorce Dr. Sleep from my brain. I mean, we know that you know it's just his confession for faking the moon landing footage. So if you can move beyond <laughs> that. Yeah. Other than that. Um, uh, no. My interpretation was always that, you know, in a pre-internet world, it's a lot easier to um, not hear about things. Right? Mm-hmm. And I always took this as there were other caretakers before Grady. Yes. But it's always the same kind of soul. Not necessarily the same person. Like, you've always been the caretaker here. I don't think Jack Torrance himself has been a caretaker since the 20s. Mm-hmm. But it's like, uh, you know, he's the same as Grady was. And there was someone else just like him before Grady. Someone, a father who's frustrated and unhappy mm-hmm. and depressed. I think that the hotel has a type. <laughs> I guess I should say. And uh, I think I think Jack fits that to a T. The picture I didn't take is like at the end, you know, that everyone like the endless debates. I took that more as like the hotel kind of resetting itself mm-hmm. and like 
the hotel owns him now. Now it's part of yeah. the, their repertoire of, of ghosts to like. That's how I've always taken it too. It's like another one in the collection and then it resets. Cause, cause yeah, I think, um, and I think even, um, a deleted ending kind of reinforced this idea that, um, it's kind of a feeling you get as Ullman is introducing the family. It, it almost kind of has like this sacrificial air to it that, that Ullman and Bill Waters are aware of what the hotel is. And, and, you know, there's never any mention made of like, well, what does this hotel do during the on season? Cause none of this stuff happens when it's, you mm-hmm. know, populated with guests. It's a perfectly fine hotel. And so you, you kind of get this feeling of, you know, Ullman and Bill Waters kind of feed the hotel caretakers oh, yeah, cool. to satiate its bloodlust and there you know i know that there was a scene that was i think it was filmed and even in like the first week's release and after the, a week uh kubrick cut it out but i think the r- movie originally ended with wendy in the hospital and Ullman comes to visit them and offer condolences and then he gives danny the red ball that earlier was rolled you know into his little cars that that's yeah. what draws him I always thought that was like a really interesting idea. That is interesting idea. And, yeah. it, and it's still it's still kind of present because, yeah, watching how they, you know, walk him around and they're just kind of like laughing off like there was a guy. He, well, he killed his oh, family, yeah, it's built on you know, <laughs> Indian burial ground. And look, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but something bad happened here a while back. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he tries to downplay it for sure. Yeah. And, and that's and honestly, that's a huge the, the mythology of the hotel is a huge draw of this movie. I, I'd lump that into it being the take on the haunted house genre that all great haunted house stories, the house has this history. And it, like you said, it becomes yeah. its own character and usually seeks to claim at least one of the characters. This is this idea that people and experiences get absorbed into a place and a location. They, they, they feel a sense of belonging and the shining has all of that in spades. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so and another thing that I kind of was thinking about when you, you brought up like, you know, this is like the ultimate haunted house movie. You know, I was trying to think of like another haunted house movie. And, I, you know, The Haunting comes to mind, Haunting of Hill House, uh, even It to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that feels different about this movie is that the house or the hotel in this instance isn't dilapidated. It's not run down. No. It's not even abandoned. Yeah. That's what's so creepy about it is it's in full swing. Like, it doesn't look creepy other than like if you just get creeped out by large off-putting buildings but like an empty space yeah well that's human nature everyone does but like in theory you shouldn't look at it and see something creepy like it's a modern at the time looking you know it's upkept it's uh it's got you know there's plenty of guests in the first day they arrived like so the first thing whenever you're walking in there is like the hotel gets your guard down because you're not looking at it being like this is a haunted hotel i'm not going in there right that's crazy Right. Yeah. And, and again, like putting your guard down, like a, a haunted hotel has like a legacy. But, you know, in the on season, nobody talks about any of that stuff. It only comes up in the job interview for the off season caretakers. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's history is not legendary. It's it's kind of cast off to the wayside. It's kind of like a sideshow attraction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it even could be like an urban legend for the hotel that brings them in business. Who knows? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then that's that's how most will treat it. But these guys just kind of keep it buried because the, the bottom line is all important. Exactly. I mean, they're from out of town. They came from, like, what, I think Florida, right? Uh, they are from Colorado. The Jack Torrance was from Colorado? They're, yeah, they live in Boulder. Uh, okay, for some reason I thought someone was traveling from out of state. Uh, Halloran comes from Florida. That's where he, Maybe that's he vacations, what it was. yeah. And, bl- and bless his heart. Oh, that's a. I think that's another great way it just, like, subverts, because, you know, it's Kubrick just meticulously showing, like, here comes Dick to save the day. He's on the plane. He's renting the snowcat. He's driving up the road. And Yeah, like, He'll save the day. Like, thank <laughs> God for him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty dang good. Um, so to speak to my personal interpretation of the movie, if I may, because I think it's so interesting. We were talking about this off mic that Kubrick movies, by being so open ended and confidently made, they they always seem to kind of come back around and they fit, you know, movements or ideas that that happened far after the initial release date. And watching the movie this week, it just seems so pertinent to you know the uprise of like the t- things like the times up movement because to me the, the movie mm-hmm. kind of from like the second or third time i've watched it on like to me it is mainly about like the deterioration of like the, the quote-unquote traditional nuclear family that it's all about you know trying to hold like happy father happy mother happy son living together mm-hmm. and you know in the 80s i think we're we're kind of at the tail end. In the 80s, it honestly seems like too late a time to make the argument of how that's not 
the norm anymore. But, you know, maybe not as late as we would think. But you know, like we were talking about, I think that what's so interesting about the hotel is that in order to get Jack to do just truly horrendous things, it has to feed him these images of, like, his important status and his entitlement, even though he's done absolutely nothing to deserve it, right? Like, he, he's been a teacher. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's a big-shot writer, but he never writes anything. He's an alcoholic. But to him, it just knows to give him these images that he fits in with all the best people, that he fits in at this ritzy jazz party. And, and even that, you know, that the place where he belongs is in this idealized version of the past, in this jazz age where things were simpler then and people knew their place. But he's, you know, that's not the reality he's living. And he's living in a reality where Wendy is doing all of his caretaking abilities and being the provider and the caretaker. The old sperm bank, you mean. Yeah, exactly. And then that's all he can see her as. It's like, well, she should know her place, but he's freaking useless. Well, I mean, no, dude, because like, he's a busy writer. I mean, all he did was accidentally break Danny's arm one time and she won't let him hear the end of it. She's a total, total wet blanket. And and that's such, a, again, to talk about how the hotel mirrors his experience that there's this one event in the past that just doesn't die. It just keeps coming up again and again and again. So we have the, the murder of mm -hmm. the, the Grady girls is, is, you know, breaking Danny's arm. It's just never going to die. It is forever embedded into memory and will never leave it behind. It's really good stuff. And I know there's tons of different ways you can take it. I, I even though it is one of the theories feature, not all the, not all the theories on room 237 are total crackpots. I'm, I'm actually pretty intrigued by the one that talks about, how the movie's addressing how American history has really overlooked the genocide of Native Americans that, you know, all, all of our luxury and pomp is built on the extermination of these people. I, I'm pretty actually interested in that one as like a, a sub theme. Like we said, it's really just the ones that are like, not only did Kubrick fake the moon landing, but he only made the shining so he could confess <laughs> that he did. Like, those are the ones that bother me. But there's a, there's right. a lot of very interesting things going on that show up again and again. And, yeah, the the Native American imagery on the the food canisters in the uh, the pantry, the artwork that's hanging over the gigantic lodge place where he like writes a tennis ball <laughs> over yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's definitely imagery there, and it's built on that ancient Indian burial ground. But the the best part about it is we don't get any more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it's is not just a couple images in the movie and an offhanded remark, and that's really all the hotel history we get. And that's all we need. And that's what keeps it creepy. Yeah. And I think, you know, like we said, there's so many directions you can take it and interesting things you can pull out of it. So we could probably sit here all night and talk about, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? But I think it'd be better to just uh, maybe blast out a tweet this week and ask everybody else for their personal interpretations. Because this really is a movie that it's like fun to watch and it's fun to hear how everybody takes the same piece of art but goes in 20 different directions with it. Yeah, that's the best art. Yeah, I think it's one of the few that like, does that and really does hold up and is still fun to watch because a lot of movies do that, but they're not that fun to watch. They're more fun to talk about. Shining, right? Exactly. The like, Shining is a delight to watch, to watch. This, yeah, if you wanted to watch this and not come up with any theories, you could still have fun with it. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's still a really pensive, moody haunted house movie that I think delivers the goods again, like that. It even has some pretty modern editing. I determined like last time I was watching it, like a lot of stuff mm. that reminds me of like um, a lot of modern horror movies. Like I see a little bit of Hereditary in this. Interesting. A little bit of the witch, you know. Like I can definitely see some some influence that Kubrick has had. Yeah. On some of these people, it, it does age pretty good. I, I'm kind of always surprised. I, I think the soundtrack is probably like the the thing that takes the biggest hit, just for like the big, especially like at the end after Halloran's murdered, and there's like that really tangy percussive sound as he's chasing Danny. But then you know, I it's, like it's, the Gregorian chants. Yeah, it's are, also balanced like the with theme. the chants that are really really good and things like that. So even that stuff isn't. The, the costuming is, is pretty good. Most of the 70s oh, man. movies costuming Although the is costuming's awful. pretty dated. It, it like, is, but it, it could be worse, you know. Have you noticed the ties that everyone wears in this movie? Really thick. They're like, they're thick, woolly yeah, ties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really ugly stuff. I, I guess I should take that back because Ullman's whole getup is... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. You look like a used car salesman. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that we really needed to, to sell people, but it's always fun to talk through just what makes these undeniably great movies so great. So before we kind of wrap up this section, are there any points you feel you haven't been able to make or anything else you wanted to bring up? No, you know, I think we've covered it pretty well. We've covered everything from like, I mean, I do think it's a little goofy, but 
but that's also part of the singularity of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Like um, such a singular experience that has not been able to be replicated. No movie even remotely feels like this one. So uh, I'm with you. I don't feel like the goofiness is it's kind of part of the charm at this point. (laughs) You know, I, I even like the, um, the skeletons, like the big, I know that that's kind of the one shot that everyone calls out is like the worst shot in the shining. Cause it's the most like stereotypically cheap haunted housey, but I I actually, I really like it. It has kind of like a, a nice scope to it. And I, I, I'm a big fan of that sequence where, like we said, Wendy in keeping with this idea of like desperately holding the nuclear family image together, you know, she's constantly just like, Oh, everything's fine. You know, my alcoholic abusive husband, he's getting better and I'll make an excuse he, for he anything. He abuses me, but you know, I'll I'll keep it together cuz he doesn't really mean it. And <laughs> finally at yeah. the end, just one of those things that could happen. Everyone does it. Constantly just blocking out reality in that last section of the house just being like and here's blood out of the elevator and here's all that you can't shut this out anymore. There's just violence and awfulness everywhere. It's so good. Yeah. And I, I one yeah. thing I would like to say before we close out is is props to Shelley Duvall. I like her performance more and more every time I see the movie, reading it through that way of her desperately trying to keep her family together, but just, it's a, it's a real tragedy, and I know that that is reinforced by the fact that she did not really have to act all that much in this movie, because Kubrick was horrendous to her. Yeah, he was a terror. Uh, yeah, it's it's like, I I don't personally agree with those types of working methods. I don't believe going to that level of realism. I think that People are yeah. actors and it shouldn't be on them to have to live their role. I think that pretending is all that they should be required to do. So I don't want to say that all of her, the treatment of her has been justified, but no. I do think that the more the movie goes on, the more I actually kind of see her on the same level as Jack Nicholson. Cause Jack Nicholson to a point, he kind of gets to just start having fun and Shelley Duvall, much like her character has to do all the heavy lifting and take on yeah, all the Yeah, She has a very stuff. thankless role. She has a very yeah. thankless role in this movie. And you know what? She's perfectly cast. She's so meek. Yeah. And she just seems so scared all mm-hmm. the time. She probably was because sure. Kubrick was an asshole to her, uh, which, by the way, I love Kubrick. I love all his movies that I've seen. Right. I think he's one of the best filmmakers that has ever lived. But, uh, you know, to hell with him on that movie. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. that kind of behavior needs to be called out. And it, it would not fly today. Yeah. You and, know, And just so funny because by all accounts, he was great to Danny Lloyd. I mean... Probably because, you yeah. know, child labor laws would have had his head if he wasn't. But it's it's just sure. so weird that, you know, he's making Shelley Duvall climb the equivalent of the Empire State Building, getting 40 shots of her going up the stairs. But, you know, little Danny can do no wrong. But he also gives a, a pretty good performance, I think. Oh, man, I don't like his red rum voice. Yeah, that's that's actually a section of the movie where I'm like, could we have cut this down a little shorter? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I always have that in every Kubrick movie that I, I like his master of pacing and very purposefully being slow. But in every one of his slow movies, there's still sections where I'm like, it doesn't have to go on this long, Stanley. Like, we we <laughs> could still get the idea if you shave 45 yeah. seconds here. I get it. He's creepy. Red, <laughs> Red rum. rum. I understand. Great reveal, though, in the mirror. <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll leave it there. I'm really excited to hear everybody else's take on The Shining. But before we close out the episode, we have our, our new tradition. We have moved beyond our initial show format of talking about two movies in a single episode. But I love the double feature format so much that uh, we still keep it around. So for this episode, Mike, you and I have selected different films that we would pair up in a double feature with The Shining surprisingly neither of us has picked dr sleep which i think would uh, actually be a pretty solid double feature i almost did you know to be honest with I you but did too. i had a feeling you might well this, so I, I came up with a <laughs> different one earlier today so i almost did but i with this game i i kind of try to go away from the obvious and so like i really wanted to mm-hmm. do la la land with umbrellas of cherbourg but i like ah it's, it feels a little too easy i'll try something else so Two on yeah, the nose. So, no, again, not there's anything wrong with that. D- Doctor Sleep would be a great double feature with The Shining. I did it this week and, and yeah, had a great time. I agree. Uh, I'm, I didn't choose Doctor Sleep, but let me just go ahead and say that I think Doctor Sleep is a pretty decent movie and a better follow up to The Shining than uh, I was expecting. So, if you were at all interested in like a a definitive answer up to what <laughs> happens at the end of Stanley Kubrick's movie, uh, Doctor Sleep can do that for you. Yeah. But also, and pretty decently uh, without cheapening it. Yeah. It, yeah, without cheapening it. And then if you don't like it, hey, then just headcanon it out of your right. brain. So you don't pick Dr. Sleep for the double feature with The Shining. What did you pick? I chose a film that we actually just reviewed this last week on the Casual Cinecast. And that is a film 
by Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch a couple years back. It stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, and it is The Lighthouse. Very nice. So I am very excited to see The Lighthouse. I haven't caught it yet, so what is the connection here? Oh man, I don't even want to tell you too much, but I would say that two men trapped in an isolated place together, and tensions and sanity all begin to stir around in a pot, and uh, eventually... Pretty trippy things happen. It is a completely insane movie. No, um, enough said. Yeah, uh, l- let's put it this way. It feels like it could have been made 50 years ago, or it could have been made yesterday. Interesting. I, yeah, b- based um, on the trailers, the it also trailer looks... It. If you guys haven't heard of The Lighthouse, do it. Yeah, based on the trailers, it also looks like mood is a very permeating feature of The Lighthouse, which oh, would yes. put it in fine company yeah. with Shining. Yeah, I mean, you have uh, the idea of sanity isolation um inner demons all of these things boiling to the surface in a um in a very entertaining and unique film so uh, i think it would work really well with the shining i'm excited to check it out i had my chance i picked jojo rabbit went a little bit of the opposite direction but now i'm really really excited to get into the lighthouse yeah so that is my pick with the lighthouse now mike what is your film that you would choose to be a double feature with the Shining. So I, I disregarded. We talked. I was tempted to do Doctor Sleep. I was also tempted to do 1963's The Haunting because I love that movie. I think it's like the, I the ultimate it. classic haunted house movie. I think it's so, so good. But I didn't go with either of them. I went for something a little more recent, much like you did uh, a little more in the past. But I went with a I think it's a 2011 movie called The Innkeepers. It's a Thai West movie. And my connection here is still just hotel haunts. The Innkeepers is about kind of this um, old I think it's in New England. Uh, it's just like this old inn, and I think it's like close. It's its last weekend before it closes down forever. There's this, you know, it has this legacy of this bride that killed herself in the honeymoon suite after her lover jilted her, and an old woman shows up on the on the closing weekend to take a room, and the two people that work there are really into ghost hunting and things like that. Um, it is also just a very very slow, meticulously paced movie. Not a ton of jump scares or anything, but I think. It delivers on the imagery. It delivers on just things I love in The Shining, like the the haunted house tropes and that that sense of isolation, and also you know feeling the claustrophobia. But it tackles it in some ways. You know, it's not a in way out in the mountains. It's you know it's in town. It's not a snowstorm isn't going to keep you in there. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I actually wanted to try to double feature it with The Shining, but couldn't find the time. But that one sounded like a ton of fun to revisit. So I'm making The Innkeepers my double feature recommendation. That's awesome. I actually have not seen this since it was pretty new. If I remember correctly, um, it's definitely a horror movie, but I actually remember there were some comedic elements to this movie, if, if yeah, I there remember was, correctly. there was some nice repartee between the two. You know, there's a guy and a girl who are the only people working there on the closing weekend, and mm-hmm. they had some nice stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good movie. I remember that movie now. Yeah. It's been a minute since I've seen it. Yeah, I, I, I know. I it's a good choice. I, sh- I should have done my research. I know forever, I mean, for years and years and years, it was streaming on Netflix. I, I doubt if it is anymore, but... If you can find the innkeepers, I think it would be a great double feature with The Shining. Just have yourself a Saturday night of spooky hotel haunts. Yeah, cool. So those are, those are our picks. I pick the innkeeper. Mike picks the lighthouse. It sounds like either would make a great double feature. But uh, we always love to hear what everybody else recommends too. So keep an eye out on our social media pages because we are going to ask you guys on Thursday what you would pair up with The Shining in a double feature. It's my favorite part of the week. The answers are always. So fun, so varied, and it's great to hear the connections between them. So everybody on Thursday, we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Mike, man, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Not not just for coming on, for but for tackling like a real heavy hitter. I had a great conversation with you, man. I hope it was fun. Hey, it was fun. Thank you. I actually was looking for a reason to watch The Shining again. I had just watched Doctor Sleep, so it actually worked out perfectly. Nice. I'm glad we. I'm glad we could facilitate. And I guess we should really thank the listeners for picking The Shining. We really appreciate you guys. Um, we really appreciate all your guys' interaction. I hope you're enjoying getting to pick um, the end of the month shows. It's been a lot of fun to see what you guys pick, and we just really, really appreciate it. Mike, before I let you go, can you remind everybody one last time where they can find the Casual Cinecast? Absolutely. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we're on Spotify, Overcast, iTunes, all that stuff. If you find something that the Casual Cinecast is not on, 
Email our show at, at casualcinemedia at gmail.com. Let us know. Uh, we would love to have you guys. We have a lot of Criterion Collection-focused content, uh, as well as new current films. So if you like classics and you like current films, we got both of those things covered. Uh, but even if you haven't seen the movie, we start off every episode in a section called News on the March, where we talk about everything we've been watching, and uh, film news, where we keep spoiler-free. So you can always listen to the show for uh, a good 30 30 minutes before we even get to the review. Yeah, and it's very, very helpful. Much like the denizens of The Overlook, I am very much stuck in the past, always talking about old movies. <laughs> so I subscribe to the Casual Cinecast because you guys <laughs> let me know what's out there right now. Um, and that News on the Mark segment is a really nice, concise update on what I should be aware of and what I can probably skip over. It has saved me more than once. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure, man. And I highly recommend everybody check out the Casual Cinecast. You can hear Mike discuss movies alongside with Chris and Justin, both of which we have had on previous episodes. Justin for Singing in the Rain and the Artist, and Chris for Tokyo Story and an Autumn Afternoon. These guys know what they're talking about. They're a ton of fun. So everybody check out the Casual Cinecast. Thanks again. And everybody, thanks for listening to us. Like the Casual Cinecast, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope you'll join us for next week where things are only going to get weirder. We are going to welcome back Fish Holder, who has selected the John Waters cult classic Pink <laughs> Flamingos for our next episode. Ooh. It promises to be disgusting and fascinating at the same time. And raunchy. <laughs> yeah, all, all the things. Um, <laughs> so stick around. It's going to be a very interesting episode. And again, guys, thank you for voting on uh, what we discussed this episode. Thanks for picking The Shining. We hope you enjoyed the show. Happy Thanksgiving. It, it seemed kind of like an unconventional pick, but, you know, what's Thanksgiving without a little family tension? Am I right, Mike? Yeah, exactly. It's a good family movie. <laughs> so everybody, um, if you haven't seen The Shining or want to revisit it, maybe pop this one in after dinner. It could be a fun, fun family movie. Yeah. So, yeah, we will see you guys all next week. Thank you so much for listening. Now have a drink on the house. Mm-hmm.